You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here doing something that everyone I know has advised against, Herds. Yeah, this is dangerous. I feel like a completely different person after watching the, the Zaragato anime, which we have subjected ourselves to. Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> what a we, wild we were tortured enough coaster. by Nisio Asin's debut murder mystery novel. Now, if you haven't followed along with us while we've been reading the book, we are going to keep spoilers pretty light mm. to, to none in the first part of the episode. We'll dive into the weeds of things in the back half of the episode. So have no fear for the moment even if you should be very afraid of what Studio Shaft has done. Mm. Our curiosity was aroused. Well, my mm. curiosity, at least. I was the one really responsible for this poor decision. You're the one who forced this upon us. I would have avoided this like the plague if I had any semblance of choice. But here we are. Yes, yes. We watched all of uh, the anime adaptation. Eight episodes! Studio Shaft yeah. of Nisio Sin's Decapitation, the first novel in the Zarigoto series. And you know, Herds, at the very least, I walk away from this show saying I enjoyed six and a half <laughs> out of the eight episodes. I don't even know that I'd say that much, but you know. In some ways, I think that the book makes more sense to me now. Mm. I mean, I enjoyed talking about it because we watched it together. There was a moment it was where- very, it, very cute couple of date nights. It, it looked like we were going to watch it on our own, but I, I, I couldn't have gotten through. I, there's too much nonsense going on in this show, which is on brand, obviously. I get it, because that's the title. Yes, yes. but th- th- yeah, there are, there are six and a half okay to good episodes that follow <laughs> the book way too literally. Yeah, I think the, the key failure of the show is that at some point- they needed to do something different to the book because we do what Studio Shaft is apparently known for, which is to take the like bizarre metaphysical adornment of a novel and dress it up to the most insane degree. You know, I had pictured the mansion of this story as being a relatively simple, you know, island mansion that just was kind of like on a cliffside. Studio Shaft thought to themselves, no, this is like a gargantuan mansion with three giant spinning golden wheels below the center of the mansion with custom glass and a birdcage in the middle. It's ridiculous. The thing is, the thing that like frustrates me is that it's not for lack of understanding of the source material because all of these grand visual feasts are metaphors. Like the spinning dials are kind of supposed to represent the ticking of the clock, that time is running out. And the table, this is, it's ridiculous. The table has like <laughs> keyholes in it. The mistress of the mansion, her dress has a big keyhole where her boob window should be, which is just ridiculous because it's, it's very How deep very and meaningful. Anime. And there's, there's lots of things like that that I'll get, I'll get more into, you know, in the second half of the show, but there's lots of grand visuals and costuming decisions and color decisions that are all, yes, I understand the metaphor that you're, you're showing to me Shaft, but the characters don't interact with those metaphors. Well, they don't mention them. The visuals that have been created for the show are entirely separate from the characters who all follow on from 
what they do in the book to the letter. You know, they can't comment on their new context, which is bizarre. My favorite one was the spinning golden dials around the dining room, which is like Ugh. the bird cage below them. It, yes. It's insane. It's insane. They eat inside I, I a bird cage. Think. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> But there's one scene where Hikari goes to leave during the first dinner, and the second she steps out, the giant golden wheel starts spinning. And I was like, "What just happened? Did she just get sent yeah, to the she, shadow she realm?" She disappears. Like- they use the wheel as a transition. I have to wonder, and I hate to speculate on this sort of thing, but I have to wonder how much of the problem stems from budget, because as the show goes on, it becomes more and more characters covering their mouths when they speak, which is a classic budget keeping technique. Shout out to Evangelion and elevators. One of the interesting things about the way that the show is set out is that every scene that we have, even at the like start of the show when things are still a bit more dynamic, mm. all of our scenes are characters statically in an environment talking. Like it's it's not just that they don't engage with the setting and like the new parts of the setting, is that they don't engage with the setting at all. Yeah, it's it's a treasure whenever a character actually like does a few hand motions or picks something up and looks at it, which I, I actually don't think that happens now that I think about it. Other than Kunigisa playing with her computer. There you go. Perfect. That, look, there is an example of a character doing something. Whenever they're in the kitchen and one of the maids is like cleaning or handing out food, which for the most part, the food's already on the table. But whenever they are actually doing yes. something. The food is both already on the table and in a position that nobody could reach, even if they were trying to animate them interacting with them. Yeah, I, I won't dwell on this too much, but as, as the theater kid, what we're talking about is is business when someone in the movie or on a stage in a play is, you know, they are in the scene, but they're not currently the people talking. The director usually will give you something to do. Like if you're packing a suitcase, just to pick a random example, you know, whatever. Like the character needs to look like they're alive. And obviously in animation, you need to physically draw all of that stuff happening. The character's doing their business in the background while they're not the focal point of the scene. But it just doesn't happen in this show. You're either the focal point, at which point you're probably just flipping your legs back and forth, possibly suggestively, or you're having your eyeball zoomed into, or head tilting, obviously. The classic Shaft trio. I think the other thing that's particularly interesting is that there's so much love that has gone into the background elements of this anime. Like, there are these gorgeous vistas presented from so many different angles, And it's all very luxuriously detailed, but the actual animation going on within this space just kind of pales in comparison. And to some extent, from what I've seen of Studio Shaft, they did the Pretty Boy Detective Club anime that I've mentioned a few times while we've been covering uh, Zarigotto, because it's also by Nisio Asin. You know, in that, it was a very similar sort of style, but the pacing of which they were adapting an entire novel per episode Mm, meant that... (sighs) this sort of stagnancy didn't really sit in the same way. When we did like Death on the Nile, the the latest Kenneth Branagh adaptation, one thing that a lot of people commented on is, oh, well, it takes so long for the crime to actually happen. It's I think things drag on forever. But like, at least in those films, they're still set dressing. They're still getting to know the characters. Whereas a lot of the opening of this anime, because it pulls directly from the book, minus Ichan's monologue, the getting to know the character scene is like a montage sequence with not quite narration, but just 
you don't really feel like there's a character dynamics being presented to you? No, I think that something that the show makes abundantly clear is the division between scenes where the nonsense user is an active participant in the scenes in which he is just observing because we don't have his internal monologue and they may have also cut a lot of his back and forth lines for, for time. So a lot of the first episode, up until the point where the first murder is committed, I think he doesn't really say anything. It's mostly characters like talking at him and espousing their philosophies, which is fine, but it really does highlight how passive of a character he is, which is, you know, <laughs> it's, and, and, and also the, the other big thing with them adapting the book in that sense is we lose his narration, which is a large part of the like admittedly slow pacing of the opening of the book. It houses a lot of the repetition as well. It houses a lot of the repetition, which we do lose. Which I'm okay with. <laughs> also, the way that decapitation as a novel is structured means that there are like no cliffhangers at the end of chapters other than one right towards the end of the book. And because the episodes are structured around the eight chapters of the book meshing together the epilogue, it means that every episode ends in a very placid pace. Like there's one episode towards the start of the season where they, they just come back from a walk. Isn't it like episode five though? <laughs> or episode four? But yeah. It- I don't remember. And that's kind of the point. She walks on the swings. Kunigisa walks on the swings, which is new. That's that's oh, an example yeah, yeah, of a yeah. character doing like interacting with the environment, which we cherish. We cherish those. I'm shocked, Herds. You've you've caught on to something very peculiar here, which Uh-oh. is that it's Kunagisa, mm. the the cute underage love interest yes. of the protagonist who gets to do all of the actual performance. I know, because because she's she's just such a physical character in the way that she's descri- <laughs> the way that she's described. It is kind of bizarre and it, it definitely speaks to their priorities in terms of setting up a potential sequel. Like there are some interesting changes. Like for one thing, yeah, Kunigisa is the person who gets to do all of the stuff in all of the scenes because she's she's going to come back. And also Jun Aikawa, who we'll, we'll get into, but they appear during the opening of the story because there's a like a setup monologue in the book, but now it's a dialogue between the nonsense user and, and Jun. Can I get into the list of things that I actually really love? Sure. Because yeah, I, I liked a lot of this anime. The thing is, is just that none of it sticks together. <laughs> no. Like the, the metaphysical chessboard scene with Jun in the beginning where they're like floating in water and they're like, big rainbow pool the like enormous oversized storeroom that he wakes up in the fact that they're talking about the texas school that he went to and texas just looks like absolute like hell the apocalypse came through to where they yeah. are they've just dressed these rooms up to the nines there's so many scenes that it feels like the the proverbial cameraman is like sprinting to try and make its completely static shot look more interesting when nothing else is happening the just absolutely luxurious way they detailed everyone's meals like there's there's so much to like about the care and attention that went into the minutia of this anime but none of it connects to any of the other minutia no, no. none of those details we've mentioned actually tie into the story except in very as i've said very obvious visual metaphor sort of ways it is not an intelligent adaptation even if it is very pretty to look at which i will i will grant Unfortunately, I couldn't give a hoot about graphics and that's just going <laughs> to be a problem for me. Also, they ruined Best Girl, which I'm the most upset about. Oh, yes. <laughs> Can I say 
this I was complaining about this the entire time we were watching the oh, show. No. The first opening theme of the anime follows Ichan and Ray, one of the maids, and it's just them walking about the mansion. And they over and over and over again show that there is an accessibility wheelchair ramp to explain how Konami Ibuki, who is wheelchair bound, can get around the mansion. And it sort of ruins the whole plot point of Kunagisa being unable to use specifically stairs. She has a hard time going and upstairs. And they just never address that it's there, even though they spent like a minute and a half straight showing a character walking along it in the first episode. Uh, th- there are a couple of moments in this show that are re- representative. I've been told I need to use that word, not emblematic. It's representative of of that division between animation and story and that's definitely the most dramatic one when we see an absolute refusal to use accessibility ramps when it would you know it would it would deny an entire plot point (laughs) if we if we acknowledge its existence it's ridiculous now before we get into the spoilers herds I should say, Uh I have one quote from you that I wrote down here that I just want to, I want you to explain to the audience how you feel about it a few days after you said it. What have I said? I'm worried now. We were looking up from between (laughs) Iria's legs at the underside of her boobs. Oh my God. And you said, the hornier the camera is, the better the show is. Wait. Do you stand by this statement? I don't know about the better the Did I say the better the show is? Why did I say that? That's what you said. It must have been a bit. I don't. <laughs> it was definitely. That's a bit, not a universal I truth. I just had to ask. But I think in Shaft anime, that is definitely accurate. That's their attitude. Yeah, yeah. I think that I've definitely seen some shows that get that get sillier and therefore better the hornier they get. <laughs> Shout out to that one zombie show, High School of the Dead. Shout out to that one. That is mm-hmm. ridiculous. Is that Shaft as well? Studio Madhouse. Madhouse is who made it. There, there is a scene in that show where a woman's breasts move around a bullet, roughly twice as fast as a bullet. Yes, you've seen the, you've seen the scene. It's just a terrible time. Anyway. Yeah, Zarigato is very horny and very silly, and it doesn't make any sense. The entire show doesn't make any sense. Coming up, though, we are going to be talking about the spoilers, the full in-depth spoilers of this show. They ruined the best character! (laughs) Yes, Yes. we'll get into that. This is Death of the Reader, your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are talking the Shaft adaptation of Nisio Asin's Decapitation, first novel in the Zarigato series. Stick around, more to come. You're on to SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. And Herds, Uh it is just about time to depart. What has been a very long stretch of very weird stories. Mm -hmm. We began months and months ago with Blackstone Fell by Martin Edwards, then got a little weirder with everyone in my family has killed someone. They got a little weirder with Glass Onion, Mm -hmm. then continued getting weirder and weirder with the Alperton Angels, Eight Detectives, Death Comes to Marlow, Death in the Seaside. It got strange in Japanese when we reached the Millhouse Murders. It got strange in Taiwanese when we got to Death in the House of Rain. Mm -hmm. It got strange in Dutch when we got to the Chinese Gold Murders. It got strange and Jim Noy when we got to the Red Death murders. And here mm-hmm. we are. The strangest. About to conclude with the strangest story, mm-hmm. Nisio Asin's decapitation. And Herbs, yeah. you said just before we departed the first segment of the show 
that they uh, ruined the best character and scene in the book. Oh, I can't. I just... Look, I need to tell you that I honestly wouldn't feel this strongly if I wasn't having to talk about this, you know, on Death of the Reader. It's kind of quietly disappointing, but because it's the most quietly disappointing thing oh. in a show full of many, many quiet disappointments, it it, it deserves pride Look, of like, place. I think that through discussing, you know, the, the book and through kind of thinking about it critically, I, I came to the conclusion that... Maki Hemena was the best part of the book because she is kind of morally ambiguous. She's not completely in the spotlight. We don't scrutinize her actions to the same level of, of other characters. And she's she's motivated to some degree by nihilism because she knows that she's going to, or she thinks she knows she's going to die in two years. Her supernatural powers are left somewhat obscure. But unfortunately, the show version of this story, and let me be clear, it doesn't just cut out the scene where she explains her motivations and talks about how she's going to die and pleads with the main character to solve her death next time around, which is like a hook into a a future story. We hope. I assume it, well, I assume it was cut because she doesn't come back. I'm not, I don't know. I haven't read all the books yet, but the anime inserts a a character roundup. Yeah. They they do a, where are they now? That's the thing. It's not a, where are they now? It's what was my impression of that character? And (laughs) <laughs> the main character says, Maki Himena, she was content to laze around like a cat and not really contribute. When we're ignoring the fact that she's going to die in two years and her motivations for giving out her prophecies. Yes, she she was the alibi for both murders for the accomplice. She is a supernatural agent that allows Shinya to get away with doing his accomplice stuff. She's almost as culpable as he is, and it's just gone completely unexplored. That sort of curiosity is what makes her one of the most compelling characters in the show. And then we get to the end and it's just like, yeah, she was lazy. She was a lazy cat. She just didn't want to get involved at all. She had no significance to the novel. And that, I think, is the most annoying thing, that every other character, because they physically do stuff on screen, have their time to shine. Even the chef is given more credence than Maki. Yeah, because she she helped them catch the killer in the end by storming out of the room. But Maki, who is, you know, the most interesting character with the most interesting future in the series, is ignored and she doesn't get a scene. We don't get to understand her intricacies because she doesn't physically do anything. So she's not important, <laughs> which is very sad. Instead, we get a 40-minute car ride, which was definitely worth the time it took to animate the the four frames of that 40 minutes. The car ride starts off so strong in the Shaft style. We do all sorts of things. We jump off mountains. We go through signs. We have this great bit (laughs) where they go to a drive-in theater. And they watch the anime in the drive-in theater while Junai Kawa, the detective character, explains how the crime happened. And then... At some point, they do this bit where they show the car on a sound stage because it's all stepping outside of reality, and you're like, "Oh wow, okay, interesting." And then the car stays on the sound stage. She's talking about the fact that the crime is staged at that point, right? Like each of the visual metaphors line up with the part of the crime that she's currently talking about. You know, when they when they they drive onto a boat and l- allow the boat to carry them across the water. That's when she's talking about how, like, hmm, maybe there are some more things that we should stop and ponder before we continue our reasoning. We get to the soundstage and you're ready. You're ready for the next visual gag as they go on to explain the next part of the crime. And it never comes. You're sat there 
watching this same gag of the car unmoving on a soundstage as a 2D background slides past. It gets to a point where it starts to feel like the bad joke answer to what do we do now that we've run out of budget. You could have just cut three quarters of this explanation and come in with all of your animation intact, all of the explanation intact, and we we would have made it without having this exhausting like 15 minute longer episode to wrap the series. Like, yeah, just, that's the other crime why? is that did we really need that extra 15 minutes of talking? Couldn't we have just cut that? But because again, because it's trying to faithfully adapt the novel and not take any risks in the way that it, it adapts it, they feel like they have to have the entirety of Junaikawa's speech in there. At some point, Herds was like, yeah, they're just reading from the book right now. And it's like, oh my gosh, they are. That's the problem, right? Is that it becomes an exercise in listening to somebody else read Junaikawa's lines from the book. It's such a shame because there are so many great bits of them engaging with the mystery. Like they make the storeroom where the second murder happens impossibly high <laughs> to get to the window. Yes. So that when- <laughs> What a silly scene, yeah. She like- quantum jumps off the shoulders of Konami to get up to that window, it blows your mind. You know, we've had that metaphor earlier in the show with the butterflies. She's doing a metamorphosis. It is simultaneously annoying, but also slightly clever. When the protagonist chats with Arkane, she's in the storeroom. The storeroom is closed off. We don't actually get to see her in there because she's in her cocoon and there's all these butterflies just outside. And then there's many different colors being showed in the visual spectrum of the scene, which represents her many possibilities of when she metamorphoses, which is a, a broader metaphor yes. for the way that her character operates in terms of switching personalities throughout her lifetime, right? Yeah, like when we actually find her body, like a swarm of red butterflies, like leave the corpse because that's when the actual transformation is done. We have these beautiful 3D renders of the rooms where the crimes happen so that you could get like the overview of how the locked room works. And we go through the like alibis of everyone with this full on like floating laser string conspiracy board that they put up in Kurtigis's room. And there's, there's just so many just luscious details. My favorite one, I think, was when they're just trying to decide how the body got in the room and they give you a shot of a bridge and its shadow. And obviously you can't see the ends of the bridge. You can only see it over the water and it's, oh, these two things are connected, even if they look like they're different. Hmm. I wonder how that might apply to our body problem. There is a lot of love, care and attention that has gone into the way that it has been presented but then we get to these sequences like the car ride at the end and like the fight scene with Akane, which was actually kind of visually compelling. It was mostly dark. Yeah. You know, it was set in pitch blackness, so they didn't have to animate the characters against anything, which very much felt like budget cuts. But like th they did well with it. It looked okay. It, it looked nice <laughs> yeah. and it was evocative. I thought they'd do a harder job of kind of obfuscating who we were fighting, that it was Akane. But it's kind of very obvious that it's her and that she's but she still does the like, it was me the whole time. It's a very strange combination. But, you know, we've talked about this weird divide between what's on screen and what the characters can perceive. <laughs> and I mean, again, like as I did in the first section, there there is such a list of like fun things that go on 
like the music that keeps playing throughout the show is like really evocative of other things that have like been in the genre at the time when they're having the conversation with Terrico and they're talking about how they're both disgusting people, they go into this like bright yellow room that switches to purple. And then this pop-up comes up. That's like, this is the decontamination chamber. And it's like, why does this mansion have a cyberpunk decontamination chamber? It's absurd. Which I don't know that we actually talked about the first time we covered this, but that, that is Akane, right? Pretending to be Terrico. Surely. That's why she like talks for one thing. And she calls back to the conversation later when she says, like, didn't I tell you that I'd be back? Whatever she says. Oh, right. And that's yeah, like she was using she a made outfit. Yeah. And of course, because the anime sets that scene in a hallway full of extra made outfits to drive that point home. That's actually quite clever. I hadn't even thought about that until right now. Now we're both on the same page. Let's go. <laughs> Yeah, again, like there's all these visual details in the background that are there to highlight the metaphors. And like the way that Ichan's like monologue is done when he's explaining the crime at the end, not to June, to, to the rest of the cast, and like the fourth wall is falling away and he's like walking into the scenes he's describing. That's a fun way to do an animated like detective denouement. There's, there's lots of fun ideas on the animation side. It's just a shame that none of it lines up. Now, here's a question before we wrap up Hertz. Would you... In isolation. No. Recommend watching the anime or Neither. the book if you had to choose. Neither. Oh, God. Between the two. Read the book, I guess. It's it's a more enjoyable experience and it doesn't ruin my favorite character. So, you know, I, I think the choice is obvious. What would you say, Flex? I think the book is stronger, but like I would almost like a graphic novel edition of the book with the art from the anime. Like, the art, I think, is weirdly evocative of what the novel is going for, but I don't want to watch the show to get that. So I, I agree, the book. No, I, I wouldn't mind if they did up some of the visual stuff in the book, like the character portraits with art from the anime. Also, I do enjoy associating Akane with the knight, especially with the anime, like, drawing attention to the idea of a chessboard, which it does at the start of the show because the knight is unique as a piece. It's not considered the most powerful piece. In fact, there are several layers of metaphor going on here where like the knight is actually considered very powerful in the early game of chess, but less powerful in the late game as the board clears, which is obviously synonymous with Akane's like refusal to kill anybody once she's sort of achieved her initial goal. And also the fact that the knight can move between two squares without having to pass through the middle space, which is what Akane does oh as a corpse. Oh my God, Ben. Oh, I didn't even think about that. It's good. That's why she shoots Terrico when she comes to defend Ishan because she's already stolen the dress so she knows it's bulletproof. I don't know. Does she even shoot her? Is that even something that happens? Yeah, doesn't she explain the trigger. The, does, isn't it like a fake bullet? Because isn't part of her character that, I don't, you know what? You know what? I'd have to go and reread it, but I'm pretty sure that she doesn't even shoot uh, yeah, her. Let's not go reread I'm, this book. I'm pretty sure she doesn't even shoot her, but I like the headcanon that there's something more clever going on there. Yes. yes, um, yes, yes. Possibly related like to horse <laughs> metaphors. I thought the show now was hurts. fine. I would never watch it again. Yes. What is it, Flex? It's time to go somewhere a little, a little more safe, a little more ordinary, but we're doing something special. We're doing a favor for a close personal friend of the show. Anthony okay, Horowitz. Good. Ooh, what's he got for us? Last what, time, what's, what challenge does he have? Last time we had Anthony Horowitz on the show, we were talking behind the scenes mm. about our favorite murder mysteries, and I spoke with him about mine. 
Yes, listener, you heard this correctly. I did talk to Anthony Horowitz about the book that can never be mentioned. Dangerous, dangerous. <laughs> and I described what I liked about it. And he said, ah, that sounds a lot like what I was really proud of when I wrote Moriarty. I oh, think goodness. you should read that and tell me how you find it. <laughs> are we Hold on. Are we going to be doing a, a comparison between Anthony Horowitz's Moriarty and the book that shall not be named? That's a dangerous game. You and I game. will probably be doing that, but- for the show, Herds, we'll at the very least be talking about the wonders that are Anthony Horowitz's Moriarty. Okay, I'm looking forward to it. We're going to be covering chapters one to seven for our close personal friend, Anthony Horowitz. And I think it'll be a nice return to a little bit of calm. I nearly, nearly covered his Daniel Hawthorne series because, you know, continuing the idea of the self-insert protagonist. But I think having read the latest one in the series, which was really good, I, could, I, can, I can recommend it. I didn't think I had any more to add than when we last uh, spoke with Anthony on the show. So I think going to Moriarty and fulfilling that personal request from our close personal friend, Anthony Horowitz. Exactly. It's going to be a fun way to to set the ship straight after this tour of chaos we've been on. Look, I'm happy to go back to something a bit safer, a little less crazy. But by the way, he, he's, he's talking about his own writing. Look, it sounds like it's going to get wild on some <laughs> level. And obviously trying to tackle Moriarty as a character is fraught with peril as the BBC Sherlock adaptation has shown me. <laughs> Good grief. It's all right. I'm sure Moriarty won't appear dead on page one of the book or anything like that. I'm excited for him to hack the planet and then tell us that he didn't <laughs> hack the planet, but then actually hack the planet in several in several part twists. Yeah, can we watch Johnny Lee Miller's 1994 Hackers as a murder <laughs> mystery? That sounds good to me. Who's killed? Who's Who's the murder? I don't... I don't remember that movie the well enough. It gets oh, hacked. okay. I guess so. Who hacked the planet? I need to know <laughs> the who, how, and why of hacking the planet. This is Death of the Reader, your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. We will be back with Anthony Horowitz's Moriarty, chapters 1 to 7. Catch you then on your Murder Mystery World Tour. <laughs> <laughs>